morning, church. It's good to have you join us today in worship. Uh, we're going to get things started in just a moment, but before we do, I just wanted to say a word of welcome. We're glad that you're choosing to worship with us today, and while we're listening and watching online, uh, there's more of our body of believers in this church building that I'm standing in right now uh, that's preparing to worship. And so, um, and we wish that you were here with us, but we understand why you're not. And so we, we long for the day that God will restore our body back to, uh, to its normalcy that we've known uh, for years and years past. Uh, man, I'm so grateful that God has called us as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in one accord. And as we are one accord, we worship together as one, even though we are distanced for now. Uh, continue to be the body of Christ. Love one another well. Reach out to each other. Uh, continue to give to the body of Christ. Uh, a lot of you guys are continuing to give, and I'm just so grateful that, that God is leading your heart to continue to be faithful in that way. So please continue to do so. Uh, we're going to pray here in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to remind you that while you won't see it on camera right now, as we speak, we're going to be recognizing our seniors on Sunday morning, uh, which you're listening to this on Sunday morning, so we're probably getting ready to do that uh, in our church building. And so I just want to implore you, it would be a good opportunity for you to just love those that have graduated from high school. We've got four of them that are here in our fellowship. And so if you know them by name, encourage them and, and like pray for them that God would use them in their next phase of life. Let's go to the Lord and pray that God would use this service for his glory and that he would make much, uh, through us, make much of, of himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for sending Jesus to die for us, that we may live with you and be with you in fellowship for your glory and for our good. Today, Lord, we thank you that we're recognizing those that are going from uh, a phase of life that has been permanent for a long time to a new phase of life in new adulthood. We pray, Lord, that you would safeguard those that are moving on and that you would safeguard all of us. Root us deeply in your word and root us deeply in Jesus as we now go to discuss him in the book of Colossians. I pray, Lord, that as we read and as we discuss the scriptures, that, Lord, you would write these things on our hearts and that we would be uplifted and encouraged in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Colossians 2, we're going to look at verses 6 through 15. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Have you ever had one of those meals where you just feel full? Like you have a really hearty meal and you eat a lot of it and by the end of it you just say, man, I cannot eat another bite. And I don't mean the situation where you leave room for dessert. I mean that there is no way that you can eat another bite. If you truly feel completely hunger-wise, you feel satisfied. 
Well, that's what fullness does, right? Fullness removes the desire to be filled by something else. And spiritual fullness does the same thing. Spiritual fullness is what we see at the center of today's passage, where if spiritually we are full, then there's really no room and no desire to be filled by anything except for Christ, which is what Paul's point is going to be in this passage. He's going to say, you have been made full by Christ, and so don't seek fulfillment elsewhere. It's a very simple process that he's going through here, is that you've been made full by Christ, therefore don't seek fulfillment elsewhere. You know, we live in a world that teaches that your life is lacking in certain ways. Your life is lacking because you need this thing, or you need this vacation, or you need this, whatever it may be. You need this in order to be completely fulfilled in any certain area. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that for believers, the remedy of being tempted to fall away is knowing what you already have in the name of Jesus. We're going to see this in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. So let's check it out together. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. This is what Paul writes to the church at Colossae. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's a wonderful, wonderful, Christ-exalting passage. And the backdrop behind this letter, really, the whole letter, the book of Colossians, is that there's a temptation that's being had in the context of these people by false teachers in Colossae to find, like I said earlier, a fulfillment in life in other philosophy or in other worldviews, or the word for that would just be in other ways of life. We saw this in some ways last week in the, in the Greek or in the Roman worldview that they had these things that they called, what Paul called, plausible arguments. Basically, that there were reasonable philosophies and persuasions elsewhere other than God's word that were reasonable. Maybe this worldview is appealing. And so in the Greek worldview, they wanted fulfillment in life. And Paul is here saying at the end of what we looked at uh, last week in verse Four, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Fulfillment in life is not found in those arguments, but in the argument found in Scripture, which is the gospel. And so while false teachers would say, now listen, this is where you find deeper meaning in life. This is where you find the hidden meanings of life. Paul would say, no, you find it in Christ Jesus. Now, when I say false teachings, that sounds antiquated. But I want to bring that to where we are in present day. Our world example of this, and just one way that we see this, is that maybe you've heard someone say the phrase in referring to 
some social movement of some sort that is, is, is antithetical to Scripture. They may say that you know, believers are on the wrong side of history. You may hear that from time to time, and, and I've heard that from time to time, in, in a way to sort of poke at it and say they're in the wrong because they're going to be on the wrong side of history when it's all said and done, specifically with the pro-choice argument. Now, it sounds reasonable. It's a plausible argument, in other words. It sounds reasonable to say, no, the wrong side of history, get with the times. But that plausible argument is really an attempt to connect the individual to what they would describe as true morality or justice or meaning or caring for the rights of so-and-so. But while it seems to be a plausible argument, it is simply a deluding and deceptive philosophy. The reason I use that example, the reason I plug it in now, is that Paul's response to that mentality is just this. He says, I rejoice to see, in verse 5, your firmness in Christ. Okay? People are tempting you to fall away and do these other things. I'm rejoicing to see your firmness in Christ. And that's why I titled my message today, A Foundation of Fullness. The fullness is found in the Lord. It's found in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see this in three ways this morning. Number one, you were made full by Him, so be full in Him. You were made full by Him, so be full in Him. The first word of verse 6 is that word, therefore. And what Paul is saying here is that now, okay, so he's going to say something in light of what he just said in verses 1 through 5. So now, therefore, how to respond as a Christian in a world filled with an onslaught of competing worldviews. This is what he says in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's sort of a, a past and present or a future mentality to these verses, all right? And we're going to see these in just a moment. But Paul did not, you got to remember, Paul didn't evangelize Colossae. He didn't plant the church in Colossae. Another guy did named Epaphras. And so what Paul is alluding to here is it says, you received the gospel, past tense, right? You received it, you received Christ Jesus as Lord, which he's not just throwing out some titles for who Jesus is. He's saying you received him as the Christ, as the Redeemer sent from God. You received him as your Savior. You also received him as your Lord. The same way that you received him as Savior and as Lord. Now he's saying presently and in future, walk in him. Let him be the Lord. Let him be the master and no other. Be established in him and let him establish your values, guide your thinking, and direct your conduct. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if Jesus saved you, why would you now even entertain with your ear any rival teaching? In other words, how do you withstand it? Which is what he says in verse 7, how you withstand it. He uses two analogies. He says being rooted and being built up in him. Being rooted in him and being built up in him. This is the verse that is the title of this entire look at the book of Colossians, rooted. Right. This is the theme verse here that Paul is using in verses 6 and 7. Be rooted in him, be built up in him. Now those two phrases should bring to mind a couple of analogies. Roots belong to trees and plants, and so to be rooted is to be firmly pressed into the ground so that you don't get knocked over or uprooted. And that's what Paul is saying. We've talked about that analogy a few times now. But then he says, also be built up in him. That's terminology used for construction. What he's saying is build your building on a solid foundation. Again, the purpose is the same, that you don't get knocked over. Well, what is the foundation? It's the very next thing that he says in verse 7. Rooted in him, built up in him, and established, here it is, 
in the faith, in the gospel. It's where he started even in chapter 1. Be rooted and firmly planted, built up in the gospel. And he closes verse 7 with saying, abounding in thanksgiving. What that means is to be constantly, a way to be built up and rooted is to be constantly reminiscing of the salvation that Jesus gave to us. In other words, what's being said is to know what it is, know what your foundation is, so that you will also know what it isn't, which is what he gets in verse 8. So he says what it is, okay, so this is what it is. He says verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to a few things, according to human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, Paul wants his readers to watch out, okay? Watch out, lest someone take you captive. The word take captive is a word that will be used like pirates to, to take and plunder somebody. Don't be plundered. Don't be captured and pulled away by a few things. He says by any philosophy, which is simply a way of looking at the world that is not Scripture. By any empty deceit, he says, which is just a worldview that is devoid of any intellectual or spiritual value. He says, or any human tradition, which in context he's referring to things that are added to extra-biblical more than what the Bible says. Maybe he's referring to Jewish extra requirements for holiness and for righteousness. And then he says, or any elemental spirits or principles. We're not really sure what this means, but it may mean perhaps worship of pagan influence. And certainly there was that going on in their culture. But regardless, the point that he's trying to make is that false teachers seem to be arguing that certain practices must be added on in order to achieve true spiritual fulfillment. These false teachers are infiltrating the church, and so they believe in Jesus. They even believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin, but they simply are adding to that. And so what Paul is saying is, addition to Christ means subtraction from Christ. I'm going to say that again. Addition to Christ means subtraction from Christ. One cannot add to Jesus without subtracting from his exclusive place in creation and in salvation history. And so he anchors this point in the next two verses. Look at verses 9 and 10. For, and this is the reason for, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now I want to reread that, okay? Notice the the, the, the completeness of the words that he chooses. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Complete. It's full. There's no reason to look anywhere else. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. These are very important verses. The Colossians will simply have no interest in hearing out false teachers when they realize that they are already full. They're already filled. Now, false teachers would say something like, well, we offer you the means to attain real spiritual fullness, to move on from Christ into deeper spiritual existence. But calling back to verse 7, Paul's response is very simple. Be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. True gratitude for God's saving and securing grace is an important offensive measure against false teachings. Thankfulness, daily thankfulness, is the offensive against false teachings. Now, I said this again earlier. False teachings sound so antiquated. It sounds outdated. It sounds irrelevant to talk like that. Who talks like that? False teachings in the year 2020. But 
you are every day being persuaded to see an empty space that you in you that you deserve to be full. Okay? You're being told daily, whether you turn on the TV or use your phone, you're being told that there is a place in you that you deserve to be filled. We use that word deserve in quotes. That's what the world teaches us. That's what advertisements do. You need this lawnmower. You're not full until you have this thing. You need this car. You, you need this, this wardrobe. You need this outfit. You need this thing in order to fill the space in your heart that will truly make you satisfied. It will make you happy. It will finally make you content. You need this television. You need these lights on social media. And you do the social comparison game and say, I want to be like, like her that gets all the likes on Instagram. I want to be viral. I want to be like that. And so I have this empty place. If I just had that, I would feel fulfilled. If I had that device, if I had that girlfriend or that boyfriend or that husband or that wife, then I would be fulfilled. Church, your offense against being tempted to find fulfillment in whatever it may be is being daily thankful that you are already full because of the work of Jesus. You're full. A foundation of fullness. I think Paul's trying to establish that. The second way that we see this is that you were made clean by him, so be clean in him. You were made clean by him, so be clean in him. Paul has already said in verse 9 that in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He has said in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so now in verse 11, Paul's going to say, not only do you have in, in Jesus the whole fullness, you're not even made full in Jesus, but we have more things than that. Look at verse 11. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this is sort of a confusing verse, and there's a reason for that. It's because we're, we weren't around 2,000 years ago when this was more of a discussion topic. So we've got to bridge the cultural gap here with this metaphor that Paul uses. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of circumcision just because of the ears that are listening, but essentially what we're talking about here is the removal of flesh from the body of a Jewish boy in historical context, all right? Jewish boys would, have, would be circumcised, and so this is what's going on here. This is what, the removal of flesh from the body of a Jewish boy. And so this is a symbol, if you go read your Old Testament, or even you know, in the New Testament it talks, it's talked about quite often, that what that means is that it's a symbol of belonging to the family of God. They did this as a way of marking themselves and saying, I belong to the nation of Israel, I belong to the family of God. However, what Paul's saying here is not that. He says that this is a circumcision made without hands. It doesn't mean that you use an instrument. It means that it's not physical. It's not a physical removal of physical flesh, but a spiritual removal of spiritual flesh. He then says it's called the circumcision of Christ. And here's what that means. Think about removal of flesh. In Christ, your flesh has been removed. Not a physical flesh, but a spiritual one. We sing about this, that sin left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. He removed that stain, the stain of sin, made us clean. If you have come to faith in Jesus, when he died for you, he cut sin, physically or spiritually removed away from you, sin, and rendered you clean. 
And so what Paul is saying to the uncircumcised Colossians, by the way, these are Gentiles, he's saying, you've been circumcised, but they would say, no, most of them know him. But he's saying, Jesus cut off from you the flesh given to you, not bodily, but the flesh given to you through the sin of Adam. And now, go and live like your sin has been cut off. Live like your flesh has been removed from you. In short, sin was cut off from you, so cut sin off. Now, intellectually, we as believers, and maybe you were raised in the church, intellectually, you probably get this. Sin was cut off from you, so cut sin off. Your identity is in Jesus, so live like your identity is in Jesus. But effectively, we struggle with this. You know, believers are easily outdone in devotion by people of evil philosophies. I'm going to say that again. Believers at large are easily outdone in devotion by people of evil philosophies. Muslims, they just finished Ramadan. Devout Muslims just finished Ramadan. If you know what Ramadan is, it's 40 days where they fast, sun up to sundown, and they don't eat anything. Sun up to sundown. While the sun is out, they consume nothing for 40 days. And many Muslims all over the world do this because they're devoted to their pagan philosophy. Jehovah's Witnesses have a boldness about their hopeless message to go door to door, and it is a hopeless message. And yet, their devotion puts us to shame. Not even world religions consider just the cultural secularism of our day, the sexual revolution. I don't care if you disagree, this is who I am, they say. Man, if God gave us such boldness, or if we would give him such boldness from ourselves. We don't care if you disagree, this is who we are in Jesus. I use those examples, and I'll use this one too. It is shameful that abortionists desire the right to murder unborn children more than most believers desire to put to death their own patterns of sin. People's devotion of pagan and evil philosophies, it puts ours to shame at times. The sin that once enslaved you wants to once again enslave you. Jesus cut it off. Cut it off. We treat sin like it's a bothersome mosquito instead of like the hungry lion that it is. You were made clean by him, so be clean in him. And listen, when you daily fall short, and you will, don't grow disheartened and ashamed. Rather, be reminded that you have already been made alive in him. Certainly, the gospel is a gospel of grace, but it's also a gospel of devotion to the one that's given. The third way that we see a foundation of fullness in this passage is you were made alive by him, so live for him. You were made alive by him, so live for him. Again, the clear goal of this entire section of the letter is you don't need fill in the blank because in Christ you have been full, okay? That's very clearly the message that Paul's getting at. You don't need those philosophies that they're trying to convince you of, those persuasive arguments. You don't need those things because in Christ you have been made full. He then says in Christ you have been made clean, a circumcision of Christ. A circumcision of Christ. But now he's going to say that in Christ, not only do you not need those things for those reasons, you don't need those things because you have been brought back to life. You've been made alive. And he uses baptism to illustrate this. Look at verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, 
who raised him from the dead, and you, listen, you who were once, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. He talks about baptism here because baptism signifies what the empty tomb solidifies. Baptism signifies what the empty tomb solidifies. You put them under water, you bring them out of water. It symbolizes being buried and put to death and being raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. He's illustrating the story that we have because of the cross and the empty tomb. And that is that baptism signifies what the empty tomb solidifies. Buried with him, made alive with him. And this is just a side note before we get to more application. Go be baptized. Be baptized. Be obedient because it is a great display in your life that the gospel has made you new. Be baptized. But again here, Paul is going to acknowledge one of the most profound themes in the Bible that I need you to understand. All right? He's going to make a point and acknowledge one of the, most, the greatest, most profound themes in the Bible I need you to understand. He says that you were dead in your trespasses, but you've been made alive. Listen, he says here, together with him. Now listen. Can't emphasize enough how incredible those three words are. Together with him. Together with him. There's two things about God that you have to understand. Number one, God is just. God is just. That means that God punishes sinners. He is holy and he's just, which means that he cannot pardon sinners. He can't because that would be unjust. But at the same time, God is not only just, but he's something else. He's forgiving. <laughs> he is loving. He is a pardoning God. And so how can those two things, how can we be made alive together with God if those two things are sort of, they seem like they're in conflict with one another, right? That God is just, and so he has to punish sinners, that's me, and yet he's forgiving. And I know that in Jesus he has forgiven me. Is God unjust? Or is he unloving? How do we reconcile these two things? Look at verse 14. How did he do this? How did God make alive together with him, forgiving all our trespasses? Here it is, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I'm going to read it again. He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, he uses an interesting phrase in verse 14. He uses the phrase, record of debt. This is what that means. This is a legal indebtedness to the judging authority, right? In Roman practice, there would be a record of debt that would sometimes be nailed to the cross of the criminal, above the criminal. And so if someone walked by and they wanted to know what was the offense, they would look at that and they'd say, oh, that's what he did. That was his offense. Well, listen, Rome is not the judging authority. God is the judging authority over all creation, not just over humanity, but over all of creation. And God's standard is sinlessness. And listen, you fall short of glory. You fall short of holiness because you are not sinless. And you and I both deserve punishment. You deserve the wrath of God. But listen, God is a, a loving God, steadfast and loving, and abounding in mercy and grace. And we know that because of what it says here in verse 14. That your record of sin against a holy God was hammered, not to your own cross, but it was hammered to the cross of the one who died for your 
crimes against a holy God. Jesus became your substitute. Jesus took your place in death that you could take his place in glory, in righteousness. That is the good news of the gospel. And in so doing, look at this last verse in verse 15. In so doing, look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, in ancient Roman tradition, the verb that Paul uses, put them to open shame, was one most often associated with a military victory parade. When they would do this, this, this victory parade, this military victory parade in ancient Rome, behind the general, the victor, the victor general, as he rode back into town, into the city in splendor, through the city would follow him in chains, prisoners from the successful conquest just concluded, and oftentimes even the ruler of that people group. And so the victory parade was this way to put to shame the enemy and glorify the victor. Here's where this comes to us. Because Jesus defeated sin and death, he now parades about in victory, dragging behind him the evil one and all the forces as those publicly displayed as defeated at the hands of our king. Listen, the good news here. You may lose daily battles versus sin, but Satan has been defeated and disarmed. He has been put to open shame. He is powerless against those found in the name of Jesus. Your debt has been fastened to the victor's cross, and Jesus is king. You know, we live, or we acknowledge, that Jesus is king. We, around Christmas time especially, the king, is king, the king of kings is here, the king is born. We acknowledge that he's the king of our salvation, but we are sadly reluctant to make him the king of our lives. What I mean by that is that Jesus isn't just the king of your salvation. If he is truly the king of kings, he will be, first and foremost, he'll be the king of your marriage. He'll be the king of your workplace as, as an employee. He'll be the king of your parenting techniques. He'll be the king of your finances. He'll be the king of your church involvement. He'll be the king of your studies and your involvement as a student. He'll be the king of your friendships, of your relationships. Is he the king? Just self-evaluate. Is he really the king of your life? Paul was here today. I think that this is what he would have us take from this passage. Simply put, and I'll just close with this, that one, you have been made full. Guys, you can come into this room empty. You can come before your screen empty. But man, God forbid you leave it empty. Because God has made you full in the name of Jesus. And so one thing I think that Paul wants us to understand is that the world can't fill you up. Only Jesus can do that. And look, he has done that. If you will only find satisfaction in what he has accomplished. And finally, I'll leave you with this. Cling to nothing more in this life than to be satisfied in the one that you will cling to in the next. Let us be satisfied in him, filled in him, and made complete in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for the glory of your name that we get to come before you as we study the word, open ourselves up. We pray that you would tear us open.
Lord, we thank you that you have made us like Jesus and you've stripped away our sin. You've circumcised our flesh and you've made us clean in the name of Christ. I pray that, Lord, as you have made us alive in Jesus, so we would live for you. So you have made us full by the way of the gospel, that we would live like people that have truly been made full. We say these things and we pray these things in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Stick around. Uh, we're going to have our discussion questions that will be uploaded in just a moment. I pray and I hope that they are beneficial. And I hope that it's been a good week and that this next week will be a wonderful week. That God blesses you in a huge way. Uh, I love you and I look forward to seeing you again very soon. God bless. Thank you.